Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Good evening and welcome. This is Tell Me Everything. It's so good to be with you. I'm John Fugelsang. Very nice to be back. I know you didn't even notice I was gone. I, 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 I know how it is. Chris Houseltz, our executive producer, running the show from the South Carolina studios. Thea Harper running this thing from the Brooklyn studios. I have been in L.A. for a very, very long time. Back in town now. Glad you're with us. Hope you're doing well. For the next three hours, we are at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. We have a lot to get to. When the summer began, the Democratic Party looked like they were headed towards a defining midterm defeat. It was just, it was looking bad. They were just going down like the Hindenburg, right? The high gas prices, the inflation, couldn't get anything passed. Record dissatisfaction with the economy. Republicans were all set for massive takeovers in both the House and the Senate. And now, as summer comes to an end, happy September, everybody, the mood has changed for a lot of different reasons. Number one, Congress has begun getting stuff done. Uh, The Inflation Reduction Act. $740 $740 billion reconciliation package that uh, does everything. It has extended Obamacare subsidies, allows Medicare to finally negotiate lower prescription drug prices, fights climate change. They, they passed the, the Chips and Science Act, which is a huge bipartisan compromise that's going to help the U.S. semiconductor industry. Uh, the PACT Act for vets, the first gun control bill in three decades. They, that, that, I mean, prescription drugs are going to get a lot cheaper because Democrats were playing the long game. That's different from when summer began. Also, uh, gas prices are down. After hitting $5 per gallon, gas prices are now roughly about $3.85 nationally. In some states like Georgia, it's like in the $3.40 range, according to AAA. Like, the price of gas went down $0.50 per gallon in just a month. That's, that's, That's pretty big, too, since summer began. Oh, you know what else changed? Since summer began, uh, Senate Republican candidates have really stinked up the room. I mean, in many key races, including the petulant Peter Thiel Tick in Arizona, the deranged lunatic with a head injury in Georgia, the grifter reality show quack in Pennsylvania. These guys are all trailing their Democratic opponents, in some cases by a wide margin. That's changed since summer began. You got Mitch McConnell and Rick Scott at war now. 
That's one of my favorite things that's changed. You, you, Rick, of course, is the chair of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. He's responsible, as you know, for one of the greatest Medicare frauds in U.S. history. Now the money's gone, and they're wondering where it went. And when Mitch McConnell, right before I went on vacation, suggested Republicans might not win back the Senate because of the low quality of candidates the party's nominated, Rick Scott said those remarks were treasonous. He called the head of his party treasonous. Two months before Election Day. And of course, well, one thing that hasn't changed from the beginning of summer till now, Trumpy Trump, 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 Trump. The media can't stop. And of course, for the last three weeks, it's been the Mar-a-Lago document story of how librarians got robbed by an illiterate. That's how I'm going to write this whole thing when it's done. Oh, and then one last thing I forgot that's changed. Um, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Put the rights of tens of millions of American women at risk. So things have changed a lot in just a few short months, but nothing has changed the political landscape, like telling millions of American women that they now have fewer rights than their mothers and grandmothers enjoyed. You got the gender gap for Democrats. You got the youth gap. You got the enthusiasm gap. And they have all shrunk, my friends. The gender gap, youth gap, and enthusiasm gap have shrunk dramatically. They've shrunk. They've shrunk like Don Jr.'s pupils after a wild night out in Atlantic City till 5 a.m. on a Monday. <laughs> Welcome to midterm season. I'm excited to watch it with you. We're going to have a great fall. Sirius XM Progress is the place to be. Keep your radio preset to progress. Tell your Alexa system to play this channel. You're going to need all the sanity you can get. Um, I'm really thrilled to be back doing the show on the East Coast again. I had two weeks in L.A. where using a turn signal is a sign of weakness. Right before we went on break, Chris, the day we went on break was the John Boyega interview, uh, which you may have heard either on the show, on Sirius XM On Demand, on John Fuglesang Podcast, on the app. Uh, I had no idea that interview was... Going to go When's so he viral. Do a Star Wars movie. You know what? Turns out he's going to do a sequel to the interview he did with us because uh, it made more attention than uh, anything. Um, I, I asked him questions about craft and about racism for 28 minutes, and then I talked about Star Wars for two minutes, and boom. <laughs> the Star Wars quote, it was so surreal to be on a plane and just seeing our interview show up in Deadline and Hollywood Reporter and Variety. Uh, thank you all for the nice words on that. Hope you liked it. We're going to be having a very special town hall with a live audience next week with friend of the show, Ken Burns. His new film is about the U.S. and the Holocaust, and I'm really, really thrilled to be having him back. This will be uh, only our second town hall that I've done since the pandemic started, so we're really excited. Also, oh, this coming Saturday, the Stephanie Miller Sexy Liberal Save Democracy Comedy Tour is coming to Washington, D.C., to the Harmon Center for the Performing Arts. It's a great room. It's a great show. It's going to be Stephanie, Hal Sparks, and me with some special guests, some of whom I can announce, like Glenn Kirshner, others of whom we're still in the negotiating phase. But the midterm season will kick off this weekend. Thanks to everybody who uh, called in to the Stephanie Miller Show when I was sitting in for all day last Friday and the Friday before. It was a real pleasure to break my vacation and go hang with the mooks. Uh, but that's this Saturday. If you're on the East Coast, come on down. It's the first time it's the original tour lineup of Stephanie Hal Sparks and me in like eight or nine years. So it's going to be really, really fun. Thanks to all the great audiences who came out to the improv 
the other night in L.A. I had a blast playing. Um, I'm very, very excited to go to a much longer version of that in D.C. And thanks to Joe Sudbay for filling in for us the last couple of weeks. Uh, I, I had a great two weeks, Chris. I mostly rested, watched TV, took my child to the beach, went to Disneyland. Wow. Um, yeah, it was good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, oh, also, uh, I, I got to, you know what I got to do? I got to watch a lot of mainstream news. Yeah, both broadcast and cable, national and local. Watched a lot of TV news. And I, I, I got to say, I, I think the TV news is, is they're, they're, they got one thing right. You know, it keeps coming back to this, this theme whenever I watch any kind of mainstream television news. The extreme right wing in this country and the extreme left wing in this country Folks, they've just gone off the rails. And, and, you know, mainstream news has convinced me of this. The extreme right and the extreme left have lost their minds. I mean, we're just trying to make sense of this country right now. I mean, so many insane ideas on both extremes. And, you know, real America's had it. We just hear the far right and the far left. But what about the majority, folks? I mean, here on the right. They're so extreme, right? They, they want to overthrow democracy. They want to have white nationalist armed revolution. They want to allow more pollution. They want to cut Medicare. And on the extreme left, they, they want to give health care to all Americans. It's, it's crazy, right? It's both sides. Both sides are doing this crazy talk, y'all. These nutjobs on the right are white supremacists who deny the 2020 election. They deny science. They deny the existence of racism. They use the Bible to justify taking rights away from people because they want a civil war. And the nutjobs on the left, they think women should control their own bodies. Can you believe? I mean, good God. When did we get so divided? Guys, this is what Andrew Yang is trying to tell us. Both sides. Real America looks at this crazy landscape and we see the far right trying to restrict voting rights, trying to scale back LGBT rights, trying to sunset Social Security and Medicare, openly, openly embracing fascism and racist tropes like white replacement theory. And then these other lunatics on the far left, what are they doing? They're trying to get Medicare to cover vision, hearing, and dental. Guys, both sides do it. Both sides have lost their mind. What about the center? Oh, wait, that's moved over here to the far right. It's just crazy, guys. A house divided against itself cannot stand. But, you know, it can lurch forward and punch itself in the face for 250 years. So we want to know your thoughts at 866-997-4748. And, and that's if you're listening on the podcast, please call us up anytime in the evening. I know you daywalkers like to listen to the podcast forum, but we'd love to have you join our evil army at the night. Now, a lot happened while I was away. We saw the Republican candidate for governor. A Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, in a photograph where he showed up to work wearing a Confederate military uniform. A, a, a Confederate uniform. I mean, and, and in fairness, he only wore it because he wanted to practice losing, but still. Lauren Boebert warned us about lesbian dance theory. That happened while I was away, and it was awkward for me because I'm a lesbian dance theory ally. Uh, Lindsey Graham is talking about how there, it, there's going to be more violent actions if you prosecute Trump for his crimes. There'll be more violence in the street because Lindsay is never afraid to send someone else's kids into battle. Sarah Palin did not win her quest to represent the state of Alaska. It will be a Democrat for the first time since 1972. And the first First Nations Democrat, the first 
Native Alaskan to ever serve in the Congress. It's almost like the voters of Alaska don't appreciate quitting the state because you want to do a reality show. It just, I, it was crazy. And, and Biden gave a pretty good speech to the sane Republicans, trying to get them to work with him to defeat the MAGAs. Joe Biden condemned fascism, and it really offended all of those Republicans who aren't fascists, but they, they hate anti-fascists. You know what I did on vacation? I tried to take a break from being outraged about Donald Trump stealing classified documents. I really did. I, try, I tried. I tried. I tried to just make jokes about kids. Next time you get caught shoplifting, just tell security. It's okay. I declassified it. But that story's not going away. And it seems fitting on the last day of my vacation, a judge granted Trump's team a review of the seized Mar-a-Lago docs, a special master to review the documents. And it also, the judge temporarily halted the DOJ's use of the records for their investigation. Now, this story is interesting, and it's historic, and it's important, but it's also clickbait crack, because essentially the story is the same story we've had about Donald Trump for five years now, six years now, seven years, and the story is this. Ready? Donald Trump is corrupt and stupid, and he has bad lawyers. That, that's it. That's the, the, any, any Trump scandal you hear about. All of these things that will keep him from ever being a billionaire again, from ever being president again. It all comes down to he's corrupt, he's stupid, and he has bad lawyers. And and you know that. But the media needs to count on the Trump hate watching being a powerful enough light for all of us to gather around. So U.S. District Judge Aileen Cannon, a Donald Trump appointed federal judge, not to brag, she ordered the appointment of a special master. That special master, of course, is named after what Donald Trump pays his escorts to call him during the dates, uh, and her order really heavily emphasized the fact that Trump was a former president, and that's why we have to do this. Legal experts thought it was freakishly favorable towards Donald Trump. New York Times' Charlie Savage said her reasoning was vulnerable to being overturned if the government files an appeal, as most agreed it was likely. Uh, Ryan Goodman of New York University Law School said Judge Cannon had a reasonable pass she could have taken to appoint a special master to review documents for attorney-client privilege and allow the criminal investigation to continue otherwise. Instead, she chose a radical path. I want to say one thing about the uh, special master, and then we'll leave it behind. It means nothing. It means nothing. This Trump appointee judge tapped a special master (laughs) to check for potential attorney-client or executive privilege in materials that weren't owned by Trump that he had no right to have. They're all spinning this as a big victory for the Trump legal team after weeks and weeks of setback. I say, no, this is not, this is a victory for all of us. By all means, I would like more impartial third parties to see what Trump is arguing is privileged. This is nothing but a stalling tactic from Donald Trump that'll be forgotten. Also, they, the, yeah, the judge temporarily barred the DOJ from continuing to review the documents at Margaret Marl. At this point, I think they can work from memory. On these, I think they're going to be able to move forward if they can't check the documents for a few days. You know how you understand the judge knew this whole thing stinks and it was not going to be well received. She announced it on a federal holiday and it's it's going to slow the pace of the investigation. It's not going to stop the investigation. It will not affect the outcome of the investigation. Donald Trump should have done this three weeks ago, but he's corrupt. He's stupid. And he hires Really bad lawyers. That's the story here. That's the only story. Trump's corrupt, stupid, has bad lawyers. Tonight, we found out just before we came on the air that 
a document describing another country's military defenses, including their nuclear capabilities, was found by the FBI when they searched Mar-a-Lago last month, according to multiple sources. Uh, Some of the seized documents are about top-secret U.S. operations that are so secret that many national security officials at the senior level are kept in the dark about them. Only the president, a couple of cabinet members, or near-cabinet-level officials could ever authorize any other government officials to know details of these special access programs. So I guess the question is, what country? I mean, is there reason to think it's not Israel and that they weren't selling Israeli nuclear secrets to Saudi Arabia? I mean, there's there's so many possibilities of corruption. I'd love to know what you guys think. But again, guys, I, I, I know the media whips us into a frenzy over Donald Trump. Donald Trump's never going to be president again. I, I could be wrong, of course. It could happen. But after January 6th, it's not going to happen. He's on a full-time grift, guys. It's not going to happen. He will never be president again. A lot of this Trump stuff is interesting, but it's not affecting our life as much as, well, as much as the planet cooking. Because, guys, I, it was kind of hard for me to get all excited about the Mar-a-Lago search stories after I've just spent the last week in Southern California, where the heat waves are getting hotter, they're getting more frequent, they're lasting longer. The Southwest is cooking. About 46 million Americans in California, Nevada, Arizona, Utah, Idaho, and Oregon are under excessive heat warning advisories. States out west have a heat wave this week, and it's smashing so many records. Inland areas of California have gone beyond 112 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, records are breaking everywhere. There's many fires already burning. There may be worse wildfires by the time it's done. This is the worst September heat wave in Western USA history, no doubt, tweeted weather historian Maximiliano Herrera. In Death Valley, uh, they may break their all-time September record of 125 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's 126 for the entire state, set in Mecca, California in September 1950. But from a public health perspective, I mean, it's hot at night. Like, overnight lows are breaking records. Temperatures have been, in some cases, not dropping below 80 degrees in huge swaths of southern and central California. So folks living without AC, seniors perhaps, low-income folks, are not getting any overnight relief. Sharp increases in heat illnesses during heat waves happen when overnight lows remain above 78 degrees. We are seeing heat events that would be impossible without climate change caused by humans. And we're going to start seeing the energy demand outpace supply. It's already beginning. California is in danger of power outages, rolling blackouts. No one who is alive in the state of California, I read this in Axios today, no one alive in California has seen a September heat wave like this. The state grid operator, California ISO, is predicting an all-time record demand for power. It's it's like a five-year high of power use. And the only way blackouts can now be avoided is if consumers start to double or even triple their efforts to conserve electricity. It is scary. And again, these heat waves are becoming longer-lasting, more intense, and more common because of, you guessed it, the burning of fossil fuels. And a lot of studies have said extreme heat events would have been virtually impossible without man-made climate change. 
In large parts of California, it's going to remain at least 20 degrees Fahrenheit above the average for September. National Weather Service forecast office in L.A. referred to the heat on Sunday as a kiln-like environment. We spent the entire day inside. We wanted to take my child to the beach. At the beach, the real feel was 104 degrees. On the beach, at the water, the real feel was 104 degrees on Sunday. 102 degrees high in Great Falls, Montana on September 3rd set a monthly record. 104 degrees record high in Reno, Nevada on Sunday. Another monthly record. They'll probably pass this week. 115 degrees in Sacramento, breaking their all-time high for any month. 94 degrees for Oakland, California, which is about 20 degrees above their average. And this is in Canada as well, uh, setting records all over. It's a scary time. And to me, what's happening right now with our environment, with the heat waves, affects our lives a lot more than Donald Trump. I don't know if the media will ever find it as interesting. But I want to know what's on your mind. I want to know what's been keeping you guys engaged over the break. I want to know what's getting you up in the morning and keeping you up at night. We have a great show tonight. And I just want to say, I, I finally, I watched a lot of TV, Chris. I tried to. Um, I watched uh, The Old Man. I watched The Sandman. All kinds of men. Watching that Lord of the Rings show. I can't believe they made a prequel to Lord of the Rings and didn't call it Better Call Sauron. It was right oh there. I'm, I'm here to help, and it's right there. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is SiriusXM. I'm John saying I have a lot to get to. Wow, I want to play some of this audio from Trump's speeches over the weekend and from Biden's over the weekend. But first, let's take a moment and go to our good friend Marie calling from Atlanta. Counselor, can you explain a special master to me? <laughs> yes, I can. And, and I will start with, with a joke for you. Please. You know what they call all those September birthdays? You know what all those babies are? What? Late Christmas gift. Oh, that's me. September 3rd. Count that. Count that. Uh, there you go. <laughs> that's it. You know, if your birthday's the first week of September, your parents were doing something New Year's Eve. Christmas party, holiday party, got a little out of hand. <laughs> that's all I'm talking about. Yep. Anyway. So let's talk about special masters. Okay. A special master is usually someone that you will bring in for the purpose of reviewing documents to determine if they fit within a certain category. Usually it's to weed out things that are attorney-client privilege. 
So if there's an email where I'm telling a client, you know, hey, I looked into this issue for you. These are the risks. This is what I advise. That's under attorney-client privilege. It's advice. Or if I drafted a document for them to review and sign, that's work product. That sort of thing would be screened out. Okay. And that would be done by a special master. Usually it's going to be when there's a government entity involved, but it's not always limited to a government entity. The thing about a special master is it's just one person. Right. Um, So a special master screening is going to take a long time because that's just one set of eyes. Going through Um, all of these documents, which uh, generally we can understand are not suitable for civilian viewing. Um, One of the many problems I have. Now, in theory... Marie, I have no problem with a, an impartial third party getting to review these things. I think this is just a way of slowing the wheel a little bit by Trump's lawyers. I, I think the more impartial people that say, oh, no, you go ahead. This is messed up. Uh, I, I'm fine with it. But I, I got to ask, while I respect the attorney-client privilege angle, how can that ever be invoked when the documents in question are not the property of the person who's been searched. I mean, the the documents here are the property of the federal government. This individual took them home, and now after saying, well, the FBI planted them, or or, or, no, uh, I declassified them, or or, uh, it's all a witch hunt, now a special master is granted? I mean, it just seems like the... It seems like they're bending over backwards to let Trump play victim a little bit less. Well, I mean, that's... That is this whole matter in a nutshell, bending over backwards to, to give Trump deference that he does not deserve. The the fact that there was, I would say may or may not have been, but we know that there was um, classified, top secret, SCI um, type of material included in the documents that were retrieved pursuant to a search, that doesn't change the fact that all of the documents that he had were the property of the United States. He wasn't entitled to take them. So this is, in many respects, it's a red herring. Right. He, he did something he wasn't entitled to do. He took things that don't belong to him. And the judge's ruling, in my opinion, demonstrates that she does not understand that executive privilege goes to the office. It's not personal. Now, attorney-client yeah. privilege is personal, right? Um, whatever the um, whatever the, the White House attorney or his personal attorney may have advised him um, documents that are related to that advice that he may have taken with him. Yeah, we, we, he could make a credible case for those being his documents as they are advice to him. Right. But anything else, executive privilege is not, that's not a privilege that goes with him wherever he goes. They don't, and the documents no, of course. don't become his. Well, if I, and if I may, Marie, you're you're far too civilized for this show because I'd be a lot more petty than you about it. I mean, if the average person was caught with these kind of documents, they'd be arrested, they they'd have all their properties searched, they'd be interrogated, they would not be allowed to ask for a special master. I mean, the privilege is just unspeakable here. But to me, I'm going to go really petty and say that let, let's say you're this judge, right? Your only goal here is to hope that someday the Federalist Society puts you up to be a right wing Supreme Court justice. So what? What do you do when you're in this position? And I think the judge 
knew what a stinker this ruling was, and that's why she announced it on Labor Day, on the day of a federal holiday. She puts this out there, knowing that it'll make her look good with the right wing, but also knowing the DOJ is going to appeal it right away. And isn't it very likely that this ruling gets overturned on appeal? Um, I'd like to say yes. I mean, okay, so let me roll back for a second. The 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 ivory tower person in me tells me that we always want to say that a judge is somehow um, has judgment that's clouded when we're not on the winning side of something. I've, I've sure. yet to see somebody who, when they lose a case, says, yeah, I deserve to lose that. <laughs> you know, yeah. it just doesn't really happen. So on the one hand, there's that part of me that wants to say, mm, perhaps she's not being quite that crass. Maybe it's not about trying to get a, an appointment to the Supreme Court. Maybe it's just about, I know this is going to get appealed. Let me just do what's expedient. And and do recall that people who have not gone with Trump's program tend to get doxxed and their kids get harassed and so on and so forth. And that has mm-hmm. been happening to judges, irrespective of who has appointed them. Um, federal judges are, are across the board uh, requesting security, uh, additional security measures for themselves and their families because of the political and climate right now. So. Right. I, I want to say that she wasn't doing something that was that crass, that it was really just about, let me stay safe. I, I know it's going to get appealed. You know, let somebody else have to be the one that... that yeah. Well, I'm going to go, I'm going to say it was crass, because I'm, I'm much yeah. more petty than you. Uh, but, but, Marie, <laughs> here's the million-dollar question, and this is what kept me up all night. Um, sure. Is this Could this be re- something that becomes really trendy? I mean, after this, like, I think every defendant should now start asking for a special master just to slow down their case. <laughs> Well, I'm not I'm not sure that that will work all the time. It depends on what's being seized. Obviously, the, the volume of documents in this case um, is the sort of thing that's probably what's what's motivating it. Um, and, in, and in the few cases that I'm aware of a special master having been appointed, it's because the volume of information um, is is so large and it's possible for something to get missed, um, something that really should be protected by attorney client privilege. But again, right. The things that that she not only authorized the special master to evaluate as to attorney-client privilege, but also as to executive privilege, right? Uh, which but does that's not what... inure to the to the person who's no longer in the office. It but that, but the exactly. Office. So it's not even applicable. It's not even like even if the special master decided that some oh these stolen documents, these SCI government doc, documents here, uh, these should be returned. To Donald Trump, because he's the executive, but he's not even the executive anymore. He can't have any of those in his possession. Why doesn't the stolen aspect of all this matter? I, I don't think it's that it doesn't matter to people like you and I. I think you know, <laughs> for, those, for those who want to support Trump, you know, they, they want to. Uh, who was it that said this is essentially a, a library book not having been returned on time? Marco Rubio. Let me. Yeah, you know, let me tell you something. Rubio is also an idiot because apparently he doesn't understand that there are places in this country where they hold historical documents, such as the Library of Congress. You can mm-hmm. request to see them. They will ask you in some cases to wear cotton gloves so you don't damage them. But you may not, under any circumstances, walk out the front door with them. Yes. There's no method by which you can check them out because they belong to the United States Library of Congress. That's where they stay. And so this whole, you know, overdue library book thing, yeah, no, it's not an overdue library book because an overdue library book is one you had the right to check out. 
Exactly. This is Thank not you. That case. And as you know, Marie, I'm a thinker, so I watch a lot of Fox News because I'm, I'm deep. <laughs> and I saw Bill Barr earlier uh, on uh, talk about the ruling saying the opinion was wrong and the government should appeal it. <sighs> I'm really tired of agreeing with Bill Barr on things. But, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't see how this does anything of consequence to the overall investigation, Marie, other than just slow it down a bit. I don't see how this can affect the outcome. Well, that's why Bill Barr suffers no, he, he really suffers no real penalty for saying, oh, the government should definitely appeal it, because he knows it's going to slow it down. He knows yeah. no matter what, this thing is being slow walked, you know, into the dustbin of history. Um, and Marie, you're they're, right. they're playing the long game, hoping that, you know, they'll, that they'll regain the House and maybe the Senate. That's and it. that therefore they'll just kill all of this stuff they're going to try and vamp this thing until the midterms but they're not going to make it (laughs) they're not going to make it to columbus day on the special master thing marie thank you very much for making me a lot smarter i appreciate it (laughs) have a good evening what a pleasure quick break and when we come back more of your calls and i'm so excited to welcome author nicole lynn lewis to discuss her amazing memoir pregnant girl a story of teen motherhood college and creating a better future for young families when we talk about how all the real work for reform is happening at the grassroots level and the politicians are the ones who have to catch up and take credit for it nicole lynn lewis will prove how true that is. She's the founder and chief executive officer of Generation Hope, and we'll be right back on SiriusXM. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And welcome back. Quick reminder, if you missed our conversation with John Boyega, about structural racism and Star Wars movies. You can hear that on demand on the app or on the John Fugelsang podcast. Next week is our live town hall with the great Ken Burns for his amazing new film about America and the Holocaust. I'm John Fugelsang. This is Sirius XM. We're taking your calls at 866-997-4748. I am so pleased and honored to welcome this next guest. When Nicole Lynn Lewis first got pregnant in high school... She thought it might end her dream of going to college and having the career of her dreams. She felt ashamed, in part because she knew how society regarded her as an unmarried, pregnant, black 
teenage girl. She was a senior in high school, and she was told that college was no longer a reality for her, which is a distinctly negative but institutionalized outlook that's almost always presented to teen moms. And she left home, and she went through periods of homelessness and poverty and hunger. But as a teenage mother, she put herself through the College of William and Mary, starting as a freshman when her daughter was just three months old. And through her experiences fighting for the resources she needed just to go to college, she found her true calling, and she founded the organization Generation Hope to provide support for teen parents and their kids so they can thrive in college and kindergarten at the same time. A two-steps, a two-generation solution to poverty. Nicole's been named a CNN hero. Uh, She's appeared on CNN, NBC Nightly News, and Good Morning America. Her essential new memoir is called Pregnant Girl, a story of teen motherhood, college, and creating a better future for young families. What a great pleasure to welcome somebody who's written a book that really inspired me, Nicole Lynn Lewis. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you. I'm so honored to have you. I mean, this book is just so beautiful and so inspiring, and I just want to vote for you all the time. Um, in the, in the, I, I want to ask you about a scene that I'm sure you've been asked about a lot. It's in the first chapter of the book. There's a scene where you're in a car with your friend Stacy, who, who is an addict, and the scene kind of sums up really everything you were up against early on, because even though your friend was struggling with addiction, you knew at the time that her prospects were better than yours just because she was white. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious uh, what what was behind opening the book with that scene? Yeah. I really wanted to open the book with the lowest point um, and really bring people in very quickly into how difficult and dark and challenging it was to be a young mother and to have all of those things stacked against me. And I didn't realize at the time that Stacy, who was an addict, who was literally in the car using drugs while we were driving around, I was you know, pregnant as a teenager. And I, at that time thought, well, clearly, you know, my prospects have to be better than Stacy's because all I have is this baby that's coming. I, I've never used drugs. You know, I I am a good student. I have so many things going for me. And what I, I have come to realize after doing this work for many years is that um, that race plays such a huge part in how people are able to move in the world. And even as an addict who had, you know, so many things going wrong for Stacy, she, as a white woman, was in a much better position um, to be able to thrive and to be economically stable. And that says a lot about our country and, and the systems that are set up for people to either succeed or not to succeed. And certainly teen parents, especially um, black and brown girls, are just not in positions to really thrive in this country. I think uh, one of the areas that really broke my heart about your first chapter was also you write very beautifully from the point of view of your teenage self. And it's this, this whole idea that you were struggling with as a young girl who found herself pregnant, this, this idea we have of worthiness, like who is worthy of success, who's worthy of love, who's worthy of resources, who's worthy of having a chance to move ahead in the world. Yeah. You know, so much of, of our policies and, our programs and our systems of support 
is a statement about worthiness. It's a statement about who is deserving of success and who's deserving of love and, and resources and all of that. And um, I really wanted to drive home in the book that we, that we don't look at um, teen mothers and teen fathers as worthy. They're not worthy of these resources that they deserve that are so critical for them. Um, and I often say that it's not just resources that they need, but resources that they are, they deserve. And um, we have to make so many changes across our education system, across our human service system, across our health uh, systems to really um, change that, to make sure That's that right. we have all of the supports in place uh, for these for these young people to be successful. And one of the things that I also wanted to stress in the book is that 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 sense of unworthiness began way before pregnancies, you know, way before yes. these young people have experienced a teen pregnancy that 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 we have determined that they are not worthy of success and economic mobility, um, you know, at birth, you know, as soon as they come into the world, That's they're right. coming in with so many deficits and setbacks that we create for them rather that, you know, that they, that they not, that they bring into the world, but that we impose on them. And the pregnancy is just a symptom of that, um, of that way of looking at them and treating them. It, be it be it race, be it economic class, be it immigrant status, be it religion, be it gender. I mean, it just the culture has ways of. I mean, we use this expression "school to prison pipeline." If one mm -hmm. thing I kept getting from your work was, in a society that actually taught young people their worth, we wouldn't even have that term. I mean, this whole notion of worthiness influences whether we even talk to children about going to college. Exactly, exactly. You know, it's interesting because we go out into the community at Generation Hope and we talk to young parents about college and, and really helping them to think about it as a viable option, um, you know, after high school. And I always tell people that for many of them, they're certainly not hearing about college as an option now that they're parents, but for many of them, they weren't hearing about it well before their pregnancies. You know, they they were coming up in in high school, in different you know middle schools, and and they're not receiving the same information as more affluent students. They're not receiving information, you know, that the students who fit into the neat little boxes um, and who meet the criteria are receiving. And so we call it planting the college seed, and and helping people realize that that seed has not been planted for a really long time. Yes. Um, and we try to go in and 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 try to undo some of that, but that determines determination of who is college going, who is worthy, um, that begins very, very early. And unfortunately, you know, black and brown students don't get that same support and that same kind of trajectory of support that other students get. And so much of it is still is just this concept of institutionalized shame, you know, that 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 we are raised mm -hmm. in, uh, which brings me to the church. Um, I'm the child of two ex-Catholic clergy, a, a nun and a Franciscan. I know that you were raised uh, somewhat in that club, too. Uh, can you let our listeners know what was the experience when you as a young girl who did want to go to college, you were planning to go to college? What happened with you when you told your parents about your pregnancy? Well, we were a family where there were already um, 
so many things that weren't going right. I was I was in a, a middle class home, so we were economically stable. We weren't rich by any means, but we, you know, I never worried about where my next meal would come from. But we were emotionally unstable as a home, and um, and so when you have a a fragile situation and you have a pregnancy or a crisis that you throw on top of that, it kind of explodes. And that's really what happened with my, with my family. My, um, my uh, dad really didn't know how to deal with it. Didn't really talk to me much about it. Had, had very little to say, but ultimately felt like, um, he didn't want to provide any support, um, even for me to continue my education. And so that was really difficult. And then for my mom, um, I think just the emotional toll was really tough for her and trying to figure out how to navigate our way through this as a family was really difficult. And I think, you know, for the faith community, um, when it comes to teen parents, I think there's this incredible opportunity for um, for people to rally around these families to really say, this is an opportunity for us to just pour love into this into this family and and to provide those resources and supports and um it is so aligned right from a faith standpoint with with so many religions and so many things that we say are important to us but i think that that shame and that stigma is overpowering and so a lot of of what we have to do is really help people to see that there is alignment that this is important um for us to rally around these families and to to really pour into them and say, how can we help you succeed? And how can we help this little one succeed? And, and um, so I think there's a lot of work in the faith community that needs to happen there too. I agree. I'm, I'm curious, what was the moment for you? What was the moment where in spite of all these doubts and, and, and your parents and your relationship didn't work out that you said, I don't care, I'm going for it. I'm going to go to college with this baby. Was it a, a gradual experience that you awakened to, or did you just have a moment where you just decided you were going to make it happen? Well, I was in denial for a while about being pregnant. Um, like many young, <laughs> young mothers, I think are where I, I imagined that as soon as I was going to be pregnant, my belly would, you know, inflate like a balloon <laughs> and, and just had these really unrealistic uh, notions about what pregnancy was like. And so for a while I was just in disbelief about the fact that I was actually pregnant. And I remember sitting in my room one night and looking down at my belly and just in a, in that moment, recognizing that there was a life, that there was, there was a, a baby coming and um, I had always known that I wanted to go to college, but realized in that moment what college meant. It wasn't just the thing you do after high school. It was now the way to actually create this better life for this child that was coming into the world. And I knew that 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 was the most important thing for me, that I had to get there. I had to find a way to get to college and I had to find a way to make it through college because this baby was going to be depending on me. And, and um, it was dark and difficult. And there were so many things working against me. And there are many nights. That's a big question I always get is when did you have doubts? <laughs> and yeah. I always had doubts. I mean, you know, it was hard, but um, I was motivated by, by, this little baby coming into the world and wanting to make sure that she had what she needed. I'm curious, this amazing story where you were able to find a loophole in the paperwork at William and Mary that somehow allowed you to secure some housing for yourself and for your daughter. How did that happen? It's uh, it's such an inspiring beat in the book. 
Yeah. So um, family housing on college campuses for undergraduates is is so rare. Only about 8% of schools across the country have family housing for parenting college students. And so when I was at William & Mary, the only housing that they had where you could bring a spouse or a partner or a child was for adjunct professors and assistant professors. It wasn't at all intended for undergraduates because the expectation was if you were an undergraduate with a baby, you wouldn't be at William & Mary. And so I was looking through the paperwork and pouring through it and I'm an, I was an English major. And so I, I was really good at like pouring over words and text and it didn't say anywhere that an undergraduate with a baby couldn't move into one of the family housing units, which was just a really small building with maybe I think about six uh, units. But um, I advocated for myself around that loophole and was able to find my way in. And even then there was a waiting list and so many other things that were up against me, but um, I was able to find that loophole and really push to get my daughter and I in there. And that, of course, led to your career as a social entrepreneur and helping so many others. And I think what's incredible is, you know, reading how you you use this data to show how it's all the old culprits, right? It's poverty, it's classes, classism, it's systemic racism, and all of these factors that already affect our economy so much and our national psyche. I mean, they impact teen pregnancy in ways that we never even talk about in this country. Yeah, I, the notion is that or the the assumption and really the messaging has been that teen pregnancy causes poverty. And in reality, poverty yes. causes teen pregnancy. Thank you. Thank and, you. Thank um, you. <laughs> yes, yes. And so we talk a lot in the teen pregnancy prevention field about contraception and um, uh, access to information and all of these really important things. Right. But what we don't talk about is poverty as being a driver of teen pregnancy, as well as so many other social issues. And until we really start to talk about that and and really address poverty and the root causes of poverty, we're going to continue to see these struggles for young families. We're going to continue to see these struggles for young people and for communities. Um, and so uh, what, what I love about what I get to do every day through Generation Hope is we're helping young parents get their college degree. And, and uh, while a college degree is not a magic wand, it certainly is a powerful lever in terms of driving economic success and mobility for, for families and really beginning to change the trajectory of a family in terms of access to power and wealth and all of the things that that um, communities have been historically starved you know, of and um, and and again, have have helped to contribute to the fact that teen pregnancy is more likely to happen in communities of color and and all of these other things. So the work that we do at Generation Hope is really life changing and does address root causes um, because poverty is such a driver of so many of the so many of the, the issues that are happening in our country today. And I think that that's what just I'm so inspired by because you completely blow up this trope that that teen parents, like everybody else who's struggling with poverty, are lazy. And that's one of the ugly mm. stereotypes we have in the country. And also, you know, this is a book that really calls on our institutions and policymakers and teachers to to step up and say, are we going to agree to be a culture that doesn't define young people by one moment in their lives? 
Like, why should, uh, if we're going to celebrate the virtues of childbirth, of having a child, not even getting the politics of Roe v. Wade into this, but if we're going to celebrate childhood, then why should we be condemning poor people to generations of future poverty for something we're encouraging? And I, I, it's one of the most personal and political stories I, I've, I've read in such a long time. I, I do want to ask you about student loan debt, though, if I could, because as you know, black parents hold more student debt than parents or non-parents of any other racial or ethnic group. According to uh, the Institute for Women's Policy Research, black students who are raising children borrow an average of $18,000 for college. It's an average of 13500 among all students, but among black students raising kids, they have to borrow 18000 Obviously, Joe Biden announced his move to forgive up to $10,000 in federal student loan debt for many Americans uh, l- late last month. What did you think of the president's announcement? And does it give you hope? Or is it just an example of if you're not taking on the interest, it's not enough? I think it's absolutely a step in the right direction. We think about, as you said, who is at the epicenter of the student debt crisis, and that is um, Black parents. Um, it's Black mothers who are you know, working two and three jobs and trying to go to school to get that credential. It's, it's uh, fathers, Black fathers who are, again, you know, working multiple hours and trying to get that associate's degree. Um, and in many cases, because of all of the um, systemic hurdles to them actually completing, not only do they carry this debt, but they often don't have a degree to show for it because right. we, as, as a country, have failed to provide the supports and the educational environments that really, really propel them forward and help to make sure that they graduate. So it, it becomes so difficult to, again, experience economic mobility, pay your bills every month, put food on the table. When you have this debt that's weighing you down, you don't have a credential that can unlock higher earnings for you and your family. And even for those who do have higher earnings and or who um, do get a college degree, those systemic hurdles remain. You have um, discrimination when it comes to pay. You have um, employment discrimination, like so many different things that are um, working against you, even as a college graduate and, you know, um, helping people to relieve that, that debt and to relieve that burden is a step in the right direction. Is it, is it, you know, going all the way, right? Is it really forgiving uh, all student debt in the way that we know would be game changing for families and for student parents? No, but it is a step in the right direction, especially when we think about who is most impacted by student loan debt and, and a population that people aren't talking about, which is black student parents. Amen. I, I think that's what's so amazing in the book is that you found yourself there that was possible to go to school, even though you had a baby at the time. And and the ways are there. There are programs, there are policies that can help teen parents earn college degrees and it seems like that's why you began Generation Hope, to make the path easier for those who followed you. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I point out, you know, I graduated 20 years ago, and I do say this in the book, that w- what has changed since I was in school as a young mother is that the cost of higher education has skyrocketed, as has the cost of childcare. And so there's a very real question as to whether or not I would have been able to do it or been able to do it in four years, as I did back then, um, given how crippling the cost of college is now and the cost of 
childcare. And so um, we have certainly some opportunities and pathways to pursue to make it easier for parenting students. We have, how do we make higher education more affordable? That has to be a part of this equation. You have the student loan debt forgiveness as a part of it, but the other part of it is how do we make higher education more affordable to begin with? There are so many levers that we can pull at the state and federal level to make that possible. Um, And then also there are ways that we can create more family-friendly campuses across the country. Most colleges and universities right now are not thinking about or prioritizing parenting college students. It's not even on the radar. And so some of the work that we do at Generation Hope is not only directly with students, but also with colleges all across the country, helping them to transform their campuses to be more family friendly. Um, And then looking at our model as 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 really a proof point to say, how do we do this um, as a country and really making sure there are those holistic wraparound supports, making sure there's those financial resources, but also mental health supports, mentoring, all of those other things that we know really move the needle for this population. Um, So I'm again, I love what we do at Generation Hope because we're addressing both the direct work with families that needs to happen, that boots on the ground work, as well as the systemic change work that has to happen on a larger scale. I, I mean, I knew that one in five undergraduate college students are are, are parenting students. I, I, is it true, though, that these students generally have higher GPAs than students without kids, but they're still 10 times less likely to graduate anyway because the support systems can can be so inadequate? Yes, it is true. And, you know, when you think about this, if you're a parent, you totally get it. Like we all have this universal desire to do everything we can for our kids. And so parenting college students have this tremendous motivator in their students and their children. And um, so what we see every day at Generation Hope is that they work harder. You know, they are so driven. Um, We have students in our program who work three jobs and then go to class. We have students in our program who are homeless, living in homeless shelters or transitional housing, waking up, getting their kids ready to go off to school, and then they themselves going to a job and then going to uh, a college campus. I mean, just incredible stories of resilience and perseverance that I think fly in the face of that stereotype that you mentioned earlier, which is that teen parents are lazy and student parents are lazy. And you see it in the data that that exactly, as you said, they have higher GPAs on average than their non-parenting peers. I mean, most people working in higher education don't know that, never mind, you know, your average person um, really just understanding the incredible potential um, of this student population. It's so inspiring. I know Generation Hope has given over $1 million in assistance and directly impacted the lives of over 200 students. How can our listeners learn more about Generation Hope, Nicole, and about your work? Yeah, we'd love for folks to visit our website, generationhope.org, but we're also really active on social media. So you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at support gen hope and on Facebook at support generation hope. And then I am also pretty active. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Nicole Lynn Lewis. Thank you so much. Once again, the book is called Pregnant Girl. A story of teen motherhood, college, and creating a better future for young families. I know that as 
such a great writer as you are, you don't ever portray yourself as a victim or as a hero. Uh, but I'm sorry, your story is intensely heroic, and you kind of made me proud to be an American. Thank you so much for Aww. writing this book and for joining Thank us. Thank you so show. much, John. I appreciate it. Really a pleasure. Come see us again sometime. Again, the book is Pregnant Girl, a story of teen motherhood, college, and creating a better future for young families by Nicole Lynn Lewis. Thank you. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm John Fugel saying we're at 866-997-4748. We have a whole hour of open phones right now. Thrilled to take your calls here at the Love Fest. But first, let's play a little bit of dueling speeches, shall we? Because Joe Biden and Donald Trump seem to have their stump speeches down that we'll be hearing nonstop for the next, oh, I don't know, let's say nine weeks. Um Get ready to hear it. Now, Biden is going to do his speech over and over again where he draws distinctions, right? That's what he's going to say. He's going to say democracy's at stake. You can't ha- support violence when you don't like the outcome of an election. We have a choice. Trump and the MAGA Republicans or the rest of us, you know, you know what Biden's speech is going to be. And Trump's going to have his own set talking points as well. And in that case, it'll be anything that pops into his goddamn brain. Here he is in Pennsylvania this weekend. Um, where he had Mastriano and Dr. Oz show up on stage with him. Dr. Oz, the good news, not booed off the stage, just polite applause. But here's the former host of Celebrity Apprentice offering the crowd a litany of all the grievous injustices done upon himself and his poor family by these nefarious deep state fascists. A1. The Biden administration invaded the home of their chief political opponent, no. Who is absolutely destroying him and everyone else in the polls? I hate to say Not it. Not true. Not a single one. But it's good you believe polls now. Even including the Republicans, but we love the Republicans. Huh? On a phony pretext, getting permission from a highly political magistrate who they handpicked late in the evening, just days before the break-in, and trampled upon my rights and civil liberties as if our country that we love so much were a third-world nation. We're like a third-world nation. Black, black. They rifled through the First Lady's closet drawers and everything else. even did a deep and ugly search 
of the room of my 16-year-old son. <laughs> leaving everything they touched in far different condition than it was when they started. Can you believe it? No, I can't believe it because we know damn well if anything was left in that kind of condition, we would have seen video already. We would have seen photographs. We w- Donald Trump is going to go as hardcore a victim as he can possibly do with this. Uh, the fact is, um, if Donald Trump hadn't stolen government property, his son's room would not have been searched. It's incredibly simple how all these things come back to what we call personal responsibility. Barron's bedroom was searched because Trump stole. Ashley Babbitt is dead because Trump lied. Blacks for Trump exists because Trump's racist. And Trump's hanging out in Mar-a-Lago because Trump lost. Okay, you got it? Uh, here, here, here's a little bit more, shall we? Not only did Trump wax hyperbolic about Biden's speech in Philly last week, He did so without even a hint of the irony required. A2. Joe Biden came to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to give the most vicious, hateful and divisive speech ever delivered by an American president, (laughs) vilifying 75 million citizens, plus another probably 75 to 150 if we want to be accurate about it, as threats to democracy and as enemies of the state. You're all enemies of the state. No, He's an enemy of the state. You want to know the truth. The enemy of the state is him and the group that control him, which is... Who's that? Circling around him. Do this, do that, Joe. Who's that? Do this, Joe, right? China? I think Philadelphia was a great choice to make this speech of hatred in anger his speech was hatred and anger by the way the next morning he forgot what he said you saw that i asked him about oh i didn't think i said that did i oh no yeah you got that how'd you like the red lighting behind him like the devil oh my god he's so fucking stupid um so uh, joe biden's a mastermind socialist who's also uh feeble is the message there. Here is Joe Biden offering plain, easy to understand clarifications of who he was talking about in that speech in Philly, who the democracy hating folks actually are. Question remains, will the press even listen? A five. Extreme MAGA Republicans don't just threaten our personal rights and our economic security. They embrace political violence. Look, no, look, the reason, I'm not talking all Republicans, I'm talking about these extreme MAGA Republicans. Think about it. Think about it. The definition of democracy is you accept the will of the people when the votes are honestly counted. These guys don't do it. Name me a democracy in the world where a leader argues to engage in violence. To this day, MAGA Republicans in Congress defend the mob that stormed the Capitol and people died later. Okay, uh, that's that's the hate, right? That's all the seething hate. Um, Again, this is Donald Trump who's saying lock Biden up and calling Biden names, saying that here's more. Let let I'll just say this. Let the words of Donald Trump remind us that it is now undoubtedly 
midterm season. There's only one party that's waging war on American democracy by censoring free speech, criminalizing dissent. You see that happening? No. Disarming law-abiding citizens. Who's being disarmed? Issuing lawless mandates and unconstitutional orders. No. Imprisoning political protesters. That's Uh, what they're doing. Rigging elections. Weaponizing the Justice Department and the FBI like never, ever before. And raiding and breaking into the homes of their political opponents. I wonder who that could be. Here's the thing, right? The in the MAGA movement are not the ones trying to undermine our democracy. We what? are the ones trying to save our democracy. Very simple. Okay, stop, just stop. Republicans in the MAGA movement are trying to undermine democracy for brown people. They are racists. Now, I know Donald Trump is really stupid, right? He's just fucking dumb. And I know if you're a white Donald Trump supporter, you know, like Rob the Racist that Orlando calls our show sometime, you eat this, right? You eat this. Donald Trump poops it and you consume it and it gives you this false bravado. The fact is they despise democracy. They love government, right? We get it backwards. We always say Republicans are anti-big guy. Republicans love government. Government is how they redistribute wealth to the upper 1%. It's democracy that they hate. And never forget, the attack on January 6th was an attack on democracy. They wanted to throw out the votes of primarily black counties in Pennsylvania and Arizona. You cannot separate the anti-democracy from the racism. Their qualities that define the movement. Let me just play one more quick one of Biden. I like playing the dueling Biden uh, Trump speeches, Chris. Biden had a couple of rallies in support of unions this weekend. Trump had rallies in support of Trump. Uh, Here, while addressing the battle for the soul of America, Joe Biden receives the gift of a heckler. And it's not high. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. As I said last week, we remain in the battle for the soul of America. By the way, all right, God love you. Let him go. Let him go. No, 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 no. Don't let, let him go. Let him. He's look. Everybody's entitled to be an idiot. No, no. Everybody's done. Okay. Look. That's Joe Biden handling a heckler. We want to know how you're feeling. We're at 866-997-4748. Let's say hello to our good friend Pit Doc in Ohio this evening. Hello, doctor. Hi, John. How you doing? I'm good, sir. How are you? Well, I just, just, I've got COVID, so what the hell? Oh, no. So when were you diagnosed, doctor? Uh, I, I took a test last uh, Wednesday, although I was having symptoms on Monday as I was getting off of work. So, you know. I've just finished my Paxlovid, so I'm waiting for the rebound if I'm going to get it. So that's all. Right on. I hope you're okay. Now, I know that they're changing, of course, all of the, all of the, uh, the, the COVID guidelines. Are you still quarantining, doctor, or no? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm staying away from everybody. Good. But I got a house that I got to unpack anyway, so that's perfect time to do it. So. <laughs> well, congratulations. I hope that goes well. Yes. 
Anyway, uh, remember two weeks ago, right, as you were leaving for your vacation, I said uh, a theoretical thing about, you know, uh, the Saudis having Israel's nuclear plans. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, now it's becoming did. a little bit more obvious and everything like that. But let me ask you a You know what? Can I wait? Hang on one second. Hang on, wait one second. Yeah. It's so obvious that I'm trying to resist the temptation to just talk about that nonstop because they, they keep saying it again. And tonight, the Washington Post has the story that it was yeah. another foreign nation's nuclear technology that he stole the records of. And I'm like, I, I just I mean, it could be Iran. But why would he have that? You know, I mean, Donald Trump does everything in his life for one of three reasons, for popularity, for sex or for money. Right. He's not going to have these documents for popularity or for sex. Money's the only reason he would have these things. And so I I can I can see lots of uh, governments that gave his son in law two billion dollars curious about Israel's nuclear capabilities. Mm hmm. Let me ask you a stupid question. Have did you ever see the first Mission Impossible? The, the TV show or the movie? With, with, with the movie. The first yeah. with Tom Cruise. Yeah. With the, okay. Yeah. Well, it's my belief that, yes, he sold, he sold the nuclear plans for Israel to the Saudis. But I think he gave the knock list to Russia. Because he owes Russia? Russia. Gave the, the knock list. Oh. The knock list. Yeah. Because I mean, there's been a lot of... A lot of, lot of uh, assets that have been dying in the last year. And a lot of assets have been dying. Somebody said that right, like the day after Trump met with Putin, he asked for some documents, some special documents, some you know secret documents, and yeah. everything like that. I think he gave a knock list to Russia. I think he sold sold the uh, the nuclear secrets for Israel to Saudi Arabia, and if they can find somebody who can nail him, I think I I don't think he should go to jail. I think he should probably be executed. <laughs> to be I mean, well. If he did I'm, either of those things. Uh, look, I, I'm against the death penalty for everybody, <coughs> even Donald Trump. But I mean, yeah. you know, there's been an unusually high number of U.S. intelligence assets dying overseas. And it seems right. like it's finally caught the Pentagon's attention. May, maybe the sound of $2 billion coming from the Saudis into Jared Kushner's bank account. But I did a sketch for one of our pay-per-view specials two years ago of uh, a year after leaving office. I had Charlie Kirk hosting the the first Donald Trump pay-per-view special where he was actually going to give out state secrets uh, if you paid 20 bucks to watch the special. And back then, it was just a goof to me that Donald Trump would sell our national secrets for money. Suddenly, it's a lot less funny. I mean, it's. It's just so shocking the amount of documents he had, the amount of folders that were empty, that didn't have the information in there. It's just, it's so reckless. It's so stupid. And it just seems like he was convinced to the bone that he could just walk out and bring the stuff with him. I mean, the entitlement's what makes me crazy. But you said it. It's ego, sex, or money for Trump. That's all there is to Trump's, Trump's id, basically. And it's not for sex. It might be nope. for ego to think he can hold all these things, but I think he Maybe. sold them. Or I think, I think he, he gave them yeah. to Russia because he's got a $2 billion loan from, from Deutsche Bank that I have a feeling that nobody's ever really asked where that came from. And nobody no one really talks about it. it. $2 billion. Yep. I mean, the Deutsche Bank whistleblowers said that Putin bought $2 billion of Trump's debt. And what do we know for a fact about Donald Trump, brothers and sisters, that American banks would not lend him money anymore because he never paid them back. We know that for decades, Trump called himself the king of debt, the king of debt. Back in the 90s, that was his whole handle. But then sometime in the zeros, he began spending cash to buy all this real estate up. Well, around the time that his son said all of their 
all of their commerce was coming from Russia, and suddenly they're buying everything in cash. I mean, we'll never follow the money. We'll never know the extent of money laundering through New York real estate with this guy. But man, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I do think that there are people in the government who would do anything to make sure the world knew if Donald Trump really did this. And if he sold I, I think the main information, it, we're going to find yeah. out. I think the main, main reason they don't look in the real estate, New York doesn't look in the real estate thing, is because if they get Donald Trump, they're going to have to get every big real estate agent get everybody. in the city. And yeah. the city's got to shut down, basically. Exactly, <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Doctor, thank you so All much right. for calling us. Thank you. Take I hope easy, you're doing doctor. well. Please Bye-bye. let us know how your recovery goes. Thank you very much for, uh, for taking care I of shall. yourself. Take okay, I need you healthy. Thank you. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.